We were away uh, last weekend to get a few days of vacation squeezed in before the summer completely evaporated. We were up on California's central coast, which is a beautiful place. I got to wear a sweatshirt and shorts, and boy, that's delightful. <laughs> we were all down here sweltering. I was a little bit chilly. I liked that. But we, uh, while we were up there, we stopped in at San Simeon to see the Hearst Castle. We'd never been there before. Having heard much about it, I'm sure that many of you have, have seen that. What an amazing place, huh? A main house, 115 rooms. Just, a, just an incredible display of um, architectural prowess and art collecting whatever. <laughs> Mania, I guess you'd say. I mean, they say that there are basements of the place full of artwork that have never been displayed. And that the place is not even big enough to display it all if they intended. William Randolph Hearst, the man, was incredibly wealthy. And he poured countless hours into the personal design of this summer home, really, is all it was. And then, of course, uh, outfitting it with amazing displays of sculpture and art and so forth. What would possess someone? What would possess someone to, to give that much time and energy and treasure towards the building of a mansion like that on a hill. Why do people give themselves to certain pursuits in life? What is it that causes someone to pursue music to such a consuming level that they, they give themselves to it hours and hours and hours a day? What is that? Or perhaps the, the endeavors of art. To be a painter or a sculptor or a photographer or something like that. Why do people spend so much time doing these things? Perhaps even in the field of athletics. Practicing untold hours day and day and day to, to prepare for a relatively short uh, public appearance. Why, why do people do that? Or education, politics, social work. Missionary endeavor, Bible reading and prayer. What is it that drives people to do the things that they do? The answer is what we call core values. It is really an expression of their core values. What are core values? What do we mean by this expression, core values? Let me offer you a definition. You'll hear it over and over again least here. Core values are the deepest, most constant, most passionate beliefs and visible commitments that drive a person's decisions. Let me repeat that for you. Core values are the deepest, most constant, most passionate beliefs and visible commitments that drive a person's decisions. Life is full of options. You can do this, you can do that. What causes you to do one or the other? It is your core values. They answer the question, why do you do what you do? Why is it you spend your time doing what you spend your time doing? Your money goes here or there or other places. What is it? It is your core values. 
Now, you may or may not be aware of what your core values are. I mean, if you've never sat down and really asked yourself the question, why do I do what I do, you know? Why am I living my life like this? If you've never really gotten away to think about such things, you're just sort of on this treadmill of life and you're going about your business, you know, you do what you do because I've always done it. So you may be unaware of what these things are that drive you, but they're nonetheless there. They are very much a part of you. Organizations also have core values. Did you know that? Organizations have core values as well. They they have a, a shared set of beliefs and visible commitments that characterize the organization. Let me give you an example. If I mention to you the United States Marine Corps, what comes to your mind? Right? The few, the proud, the Marines. What are the core values of the Marine Corps? Well, the first has to come from their model, right? It's fidelity. It is fidelity. It is devotion to duty. It is sacrifice. It is toughness. These are the things that characterize the United States Marine Corps because they are the values that drive that organization. And those that are United States Marines embrace those organizational values and live them out. So it's not just at a personal level. It's at an organizational level, too. It it characterizes organizations. Now, there are what we would call aspirational, aspirational core values, and there are actual core values. And it's worth taking a minute or two to talk about this, note the difference. An aspirational value is that what you want to be true of your life. It's what you aspire to. It's, it's what you'd like to be what drives you. Of course, your actual values are the things that do drive you. And they're not always the same. I would dare say for most of us, they are seldom the same. You know, think with me on this, but for a Christian, I I think legitimately you could, could almost say that the process of sanctification is the process of the gradual transformation of your actual core values to God's aspirational core values for you. Think with me on this. I mean, before you were saved, the values that drove and and drive the lives of all that are unsaved are, are things like selfishness, pride, greed, those kinds of things. Whereas God's values that he would have drive the life of his children are things like selflessness. Humility, generosity, devotion. So you see, you've got this aspirational set of values that you're pursuing. You've got this actual set that you once possessed. You know, Jesus uh, frequently announced that his core values, and this is one of the things that made him so unique, is that he frequently announced that his core values were identical with the Father's. All right, John six thirty eight. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. How many of you can make that kind of statement? I mean, it made him stand out. 
beginning last January, and you've heard this before, but beginning last January, the elders of Foothill Bible Church embarked on a, on a process of study and prayer and, and um, dialogue. First, with regard to defining what are the core values of Foothill Bible Church. What is it that we would aspire to? And that's how we pursued it. What are our aspirational values? What is it that we believe from the scriptures God would have to be the defining values of this fellowship? And then arising out of that, once having done that process, we have, have begun the process of saying, okay, how do we flesh them out? How do we put shoe leather to these lofty statements? How do we make it the focus of the ministry that we do around here so that it would work itself out day by day? How do we make actual aspirational? You know, um, the core values, the Christian core values of a church are somewhat universal, or should be. And they should be unchanging if they're truly derived out of the Scriptures. This is not something that you sit around and do for one year, and then you go back the next year and you throw it away and you say, okay, now what are our values for the next year? I mean, if they're really God's values for His church, then they are inflexible and they are, they are um, uh, in, eternal. So the values don't change, but the practical outworking of the values by necessity does change. There is implicit in this whole process a, a need to regularly reevaluate what it is we do and why we do it. And to, to bring our ministry in line with our aspirational values, to, to check ourselves and to, and to say, okay, this is what we believe God would have in uniform or universal principle for us, this is what we're doing. How does this reflect this? How could it reflect it better? What do we need to change? Now, I can just envision somebody asking the question, well, why are we doing this? I mean, why do we need to change? I, I like it like this. I'm... Imitating the Apostle Paul, right? You, you anticipate your objection and then you answer it. Okay? So I'm anticipating somebody, at least, is thinking that. Why? Why change? All right, here's the, here's the answer for you for that question. Why change? The reason for change is because it is mandated by the Christian life. Now, that'll bolt you right up in your chair, huh? Some of us handle change better than others, but the reality is that change is absolutely mandated by the Christian life. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that before Jesus Christ, you were going in one direction. And then when God got a hold of you and, and transformed your soul from a hater of God to a lover of God, you began to move in a different direction. Isn't that true? You were on the path to hell and you're now on the path to heaven. Beloved, that's change. That is change. 
That is the most radical change imaginable, and it initiates a lifelong process of change. There is no pausing, no stopping, no going back. In the 8th chapter of the Epistle of the Romans, verse 29, Apostle Paul says that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Well, there isn't any of us yet there. Amen? Therefore, change is mandated. We must change. We must change. And that process, the Bible calls us to enthusiastically and actively embrace and participate in. Last Sunday, Pastor Dennis preached a barn burner, I've been told, and judging by the number of requests for copies of the sermon, it must have been so. And his key text was Romans chapter 12 and in verse 2, and it says there, Do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed. That is a word of change. Transformed by the renewing of your mind, which may prove what the will of God is that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Okay, change. You got to change. You must change. You can't think like you used to think. You got to think a different way. And by necessity, when you think a different way, you act a different way. And so change is very much implicit in the whole Christian life. And so when someone says, I don't really want to change, they, they need to think through the implications of that statement. Until you have arrived at the image of Jesus Christ, you must change. And until this church arrives corporately at the image that God would have for us, we must change too. We must. So as both individuals and as an organization or a fellowship, a body, a church, we've got to be, we must be open and willingly embrace biblical change as God's best for us. The reformers had a saying. They said the church is reformed and always reforming. The church is reformed and always reforming. What does that mean? That means that the church is always in the process of changing to become more of what God would have the church to be. It is, it is coming to the standard. probably already figured out we've taken a detour from John's gospel, right? We have indeed. And so over this week and in the four weeks to follow here, and I'm committing myself to do this, in the four weeks to follow, I want to explore with you these five aspirational core values of Foothill Bible Church, okay? Let me give them to you very quickly. You can jot these down. We'll be reviewing this and reviewing this, but here it is. Foothill Bible Church is, first, devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our aspirational value. This is what we want to be true of us. Foothill Bible Church is devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, Foothill Bible Church is determined to obey the Bible. Foothill Bible Church is determined to obey the Bible. Third, 
Foothill Bible Church is dedicated to prayer. Dedicated to prayer. Fourth, Foothill Bible Church is daring to minister by faith. Foothill Bible Church is daring to minister by faith. And fifth, Foothill Bible Church is developing disciples to reach the nations. Foothill Bible Church is developing disciples to reach the nations. We're going to look this morning just at this first aspirational goal. And by necessity, all I can do is, is, is introduce this and, and bring a few thoughts to bear on it. We're not going to exhaust this topic, but I'm going to introduce it for you. Looking first this morning at our devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Woodhill Bible Church is devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that devotion is measured in three specific areas. So there are three tests, three measures, three ways for us to look at ourselves and say, are we really devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ? And by the way, as we go through all of this, this is fabulous for self-evaluation. To say, am I devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, I'm part of Foothill Bible Church. They're devoted. Am I devoted? These three specific areas are in our worship, in our love, and in our holiness. Okay? So first, specific area. Being devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ, Foothill Bible Church embraces genuine worship as a way of life that reflects our understanding of God. Okay? We embrace genuine worship as a way of life that, it, that reflects our understanding of God. Do you want to know what somebody thinks about God, how somebody understands God? Just examine their worship. Take a look at how they worship. Because what you think about God exerts a powerful influence on the way you approach Him in worship. Let me try to just give you a an example of this. I had many, many examples and I've gone through my notes and I've whacked them all out because there's just not time. But let me give you one. Some folks place great emphasis on what theologians call the transcendence of God. That is the otherness of God, the, the godness of God in the way that He is so unlike us. They like to emphasize the attributes of God. They, when they think of God, this is what they think of. They think of things like majesty, power, sovereignty, holiness, judgment, lawgiver, wrath against sin. All legitimate attributes of God. All true of His character. But there is a danger that comes in an overemphasis a one-dimensional view of God. And, and so there is the danger that if, if a person only sees God through that lens of transcendence, that their view begins to become distorted about God and, and God becomes distant, fearful, unapproachable, unfeeling, uncaring. That can affect worship. In fact, will affect their worship. So their worship will tend to become cold. It will tend to become ritualistic, joyless, mechanical, cerebral. Pressed to an extreme, it becomes dead orthodoxy. Right? John speaks to a church 
the book of Revelation at Ephesus. He says they've lost their first love. Not that they're doctrinally messed up. They've lost their love. Cold, dead orthodoxy can be the result of overemphasis on a certain set, subset of the attributes of God. Now, conversely, others want to place great emphasis upon God's eminence, that is, God's nearness, His closeness to us. And so they like to emphasize God's attributes like mercy and love and comfort and intimacy and companionship and friendship. Again, all true of God, all biblical and all true of God. But there's a danger there too. When you see God only through that lens, then again, your, your view of, your, of God becomes distorted. Pushed to an extreme, then, then God becomes your, the overemphasis, God is your close friend, maybe even your buddy. God becomes not so terribly concerned with your sin. God becomes impotent before your free will. You lose an understanding of who He is, and, and the effect on your worship is that it can become sentimental. It can become trivial. It can become man-centered. It can become sense-oriented. It can become mystical, and, and pushed to the extreme, it becomes an enthusiastic heresy. Right? All heat, no light. So God has to be seen in a full understanding of who He is. Transcendence, yes. Eminence, yes. Together, balanced as the Scripture would balance Him. So what is genuine worship? I'll open your Bibles. That was all introduction. Open your Bibles. To John chapter 4 again. We are by necessity going to move quickly through some of this. But one of the key, not the only one, but one of the key passages, New Testament passages on worship is found in John's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 20 through 24. So turn there, please. Again, contextually, this is the woman at the well. Jesus has confronted her with her sin, and she, like most of us, is seeking a way out. So she's looking for a dodge, and she decides to bring up the long-standing dispute between the Samaritans and the, Jew, excuse me, the Jews about the proper place of worship. Where do I go to worship God correctly? And so, verse 20, she launches into it. She says, Our Father is worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is. When the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. She's trying to draw him into a, into a discussion of a place. 
Which place do we go to worship God? She, she wants to talk about place and ritual. And Jesus is going to blow it all up. And he wants to talk about spirit and truth. Where do I go to worship? Do I go to that mountain? Do I go to that mountain? Do I go through this ritual, this format, this style? Or is it this one here? Jesus says, you don't understand. You don't understand. It's, it's not about a place. It's not about a style. Notice he says an hour, verse 23, an hour is coming and now is. Do you see that? An hour is coming and now is. What is he talking about? He's talking about the incarnation. The hour that now is, is him standing right in front of her. And he's saying, listen, that which was in the past is in the past. It is now me. God is seeking those not who worship over in this place, in this ritual, or this place, in this ritual. And by the way, he does insert salvation is from the Jews, and it's in Jerusalem. Okay, So he's not, he's not just leaving it totally in the air, but he's saying, that's then, this is now. Now, before you, stands God incarnate. And therefore, worship in the dispensation of the incarnation of God, which is the age in which we live, it is no longer a place and a ritual, it is... Spirit and truth. Worship goes from the inside out. And it comes in response to the truth of the scriptures. That's huge. That's absolutely huge. Because the, the, the implication of this truth is, beloved, is that worship in the New Testament has now gone from fixed and regulated to fluid and adaptable. No longer do every, must everyone come to Jerusalem and, and come in like a Jew through varying stages of separateness. Okay, Women don't get as close as men. Gentiles don't get as close as women. Men don't get as close as priests. Priests don't get as close as high priests. That's gone. It's gone now. It's incredible. Thus, the message is not come to Jerusalem to worship God. The message is take God with you. Go into all the world and make disciples. Okay? So worship in the New Testament is somewhat fluid. The message is fixed. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given unto heaven among men by which we must be saved, right? It is, it is a fixed message. But the forms are adaptable, and the forms of worship are adaptable. The Bible says every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Revelation 5, 9, because that's what sits before the throne. Beyond that, New Testament worship is active. It is active. The New Testament uses several words for worship. There are two that are that are significant. Proskuneo it means to it means to to bow down before. It means to kiss toward. It uses the word latruo. It means to to serve. Active words. 
So they, they, they lend the idea of giving. Worship is giving. Worship is giving. It is giving honor and adoration to God in response to what God has done for you in Christ. Hey, that's my formal definition for you this morning. Worship is giving honor and adoration to God in response to what God has done for you in Christ. God has first done for you. We love because he first loved us. He has done for you. You will now turn and give to him. But it is not merely lip service, right? It is the praise of our lips, but it is not only the praise of our lips. It is a life of giving. It is a life of service. Just jot this down. You can look at it yourself at a later time. 2 Corinthians 8.5. Paul is commending to the Corinthians, the believers of Macedonia, and he, and he speaks of them there, and he makes an amazing statement. They were a very poor collection of churches, and yet they are begging for the opportunity to give for the, for the relief of the poor in Jerusalem. And Paul makes this, an interesting statement there. It says in verse 5, it says, and, um, and this, that is begging to give, not as we had expected, and here it is, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. They gave their lives to God in worship, and then therefore their pockets just flew open, and, and there was no problem getting the money out. Okay? So it is a giving. Worship is giving. It must engage our whole being. True, genuine worship is a life. It is a lifestyle that reflects our understanding of who God is. And it is a lifestyle of giving back to God in response to what God has done for us. The Apostle Paul knew this. Go with me to uh, Romans 12. I'm just going to look at verse 1 so I don't have to... Did you preach verse 1, Dennis? Okay, good. Romans 12.1 I urge you, therefore, or therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. That's worship. Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Present yourself to God in worship. Why? Because of the mercies of God. What are the mercies of God? The mercies of God are Romans chapters 1 through 11. Okay? The most systematic treatment of the Christian faith anywhere to be found in the New Testament. In light of what God has done for you in Christ, Romans chapters 1 through 11, Gentile and Jew, therefore present yourself unreservedly to Him in worship, and that is a reasonable or accept, uh, thing to do. It's a proper response. Peter knows the same thing. Go with me to First uh, Peter. Let me show you how he um, handles the same truth. First Peter 1. Okay, First Peter 1, look at verse 3. Peter said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. That is redemption. And that is a pretty full description of it. Okay, so there is the truth. Now, what is the response to the truth? Chapter 2, verse 5. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Why? To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's language of worship. In light of what God has done for you, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, therefore you are now to offer back to Him worship. Okay? So worship is always our response to God's initiative. Always. It is not just what happens here on Sunday morning. Okay? I've got to rename this. It's not a worship service. Well, it is, but... I mean, it's not just a Sunday morning deal, right? Real, genuine worship goes on Monday through Saturday. And if it doesn't, then it's not going to happen for you here. This is, this is not something on your checkoff list. Okay, you know, I've got to take out the trash. I've got to get the tires rotated. And, oh, yeah, I've got to worship. Okay, so Sunday morning, that'll, that'll do it. About an hour and a half, that's enough. I mean, there is a celebratory nature to come together, and the Bible talks about that, but, but that is just a piece of worship. Worship is your life. This is the overflow of it all. Okay. Application. Because of our biblical understanding of worship, I make a commitment to you, okay? Are you ready? Because of our biblical understanding of worship, we commit to you that we will not engage in activities designed to manipulate your emotions, deceiving you into thinking that you have worshipped when you have not. Is that fair? Okay, we commit to that. We will not manipulate you here. We will not manipulate your emotions. Neither will we ignore your emotions. All right? We will neither manipulate them in deceiving you into thinking you worshiped when you really didn't, nor will we ignore your emotions because they are a part of you. But what we do commit to do is that we will do as we have been doing, that is to, to pursue your understanding of God, and the deeper your understanding of what God has done for you in Christ will motivate greater and greater levels of true and genuine worship. So that's our commitment. We will take you down so we can bring you up. Second, specific measure of devotion. Being devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ, Foothill Bible Church pursues sincere love for one another, which is a measure of our commitment to Jesus Christ. We are about the pursuit of a sincere love for one another. Back to John's Gospel. I don't see everything through the lens of John's Gospel, but I do see a lot that way now these days. John 13... Verse 34, John 13:34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. 
By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. All men will know that you are disciples if you have love for one another. John 13 is the beginning of John's narrative of the upper room. John is the only gospel writer to include the foot washing that occurred somewhere very early in that evening, right? When Jesus dropped his his outer robes and girded himself with a towel and assumed the position of a slave and washed the stinking feet of all of his disciples. Because there was not a one of them that would humble themselves enough to wash even his feet, let alone anybody else's. So in an enacted parable of what it means to love one another, Jesus says, as I have loved you self-sacrificially, you are to love each other. So what does biblical love look like? Well, it looks like self-sacrifice. In fact, if you... uh, I'm going to keep you awake by keeping you turning. Go to 1 Corinthians 13... one of the most gifted and at the same time carnal churches of the New Testament. A church so loaded with potential and at the same time so messed up. The Apostle Paul, in the middle of a, of a lengthy discussion of spiritual giftedness and its proper use, interrupts it all and inserts 1 Corinthians 13 where he defines the context in which the giftedness of the church is to be exercised. And he says, beginning in verse 4, Love is patient, love is kind, is not jealous, love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, that is rudely, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What is biblical love? It is dying to self and living for someone else. It is thinking the best of others. It is assuming that their motives are lofty when you don't understand them and can't see into their heart to know what they are anyway. And the practical outworking of this kind of sincere love is outlined for us through the New Testament in what are called commonly the one another's. You've probably heard of those, right? The one another's. For example, Romans 12.10, give preference to one another. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another. Hebrews 3.13, encourage one another. I was telling the elders Friday night, I got a concordance and I looked up all the one another's. I found 27 of them. Now, there's a few duplicates, so you can probably knock the list down a little, but what a great personal Bible study, huh? The one another ministry. That is the practical outworking of the sincere love that Jesus talks about, characterizes the disciples in John 13, and so that the world may know that he came. Because he's going to take a bunch of selfish, self-oriented people, and he's going to convert them into a, into a family that will love and serve one another. Only God makes those kind of transformations. And so, yes, Christ came. How do you know? Look at these people, the way they love each other. How else do you explain it?
Now, as we evaluate our sincere love, we, we just need to keep this in mind. The evaluation is not, a, is not made in general. It's not, you know, I love people generally. It's the individuals I can't stand. Okay? And that's not the right way to measure it. And someone says, I love the ministry. It's the people. They drive me crazy. You know? Love is not measured in general terms. Love is measured in specific individual terms. How much do you have a sincere love for the brethren? It's, it's quantified in the, in the one-on-ones. How much do you love this person, that person, this person, especially the one that's a little grating on your nerves? How much do you love them? John says in 1 John 4, 20, 21, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's what? He's a liar. But the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Okay? Jesus, uh, John speaks through Jesus. Jesus speaks through John and says, just so clear, you're a liar. I love John. He's so black and white. You know, if you don't love, if you don't love people, you don't love God. Now, application, commitment. Because of the weightiness of these one another's and the fact that they are best carried out in the context of small groupings, and we are committing to you that we will continue work on improving the small group ministries of the church. Okay? There's a lot of room to grow in these areas, and, and we commit to you that we will grow by God's grace. So that we provide a context and a practicing of the one another's. It's hard in a room this big. It happens in the intimacies. So we will work on these things. Third specific measure. Being devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ, Foothill Bible Church practices personal holiness that reveals the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Okay? We practice personal holiness. Because that reveals the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We are committed to these things. The call to salvation is a call to holiness. Without which no one will see God. Now, first, biblically, it's a positional holiness, right? It is that which God has done for you in Jesus Christ that enables you to enter into His presence at all. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That is a positional holiness that gains us entrance into the Father's presence and union with Jesus Christ. But there is also a behavioral aspect to holiness. 1 Peter 1.15.16, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. So there is a behavioral aspect to holiness. It is not just a positional reality. Yes, it is. But, but it is a practical outworking too. So what does holiness look like? How do we measure it? Well, the passage, I think, that does a really good job is over in Galatians. So why don't you go there to Galatians chapter 5. There in Galatians 5, the Apostle Paul gives a contrast for what it means to walk by the Spirit versus walking by the flesh. Galatians 5, verse 
Now remember, we're talking about behavioral aspects here. Paul says in Ephesians, or Galatians 5, verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. By the way, you notice that there's no, uh, no checkoff list? There's, there's no things that I do do and don't do that I can check off? Okay? Holiness is not measured by your to-do list. Yeah, I don't do these things, and I do do these things, therefore I am holy. Not, not according to the Bible. Okay? Behavior, yes. Behavior must be holy. It must reveal the work of the Spirit of God in you. But it, is, it begins inside with a transformation of your inner attitudes, your core values. Okay? It works from the inside out, and it will manifest itself in the work of your hands and your behavior. How you speak, what you do, where you give your time, so forth. But it begins inside. It's all about love, all about joy, all about peace, patience, kindness. Okay? That's what it means to be behaviorally holy, to be like the Holy One. These characteristics define Jesus Christ. You are to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. You want to be like Jesus Christ? What's your love quotient? Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Okay? These are the tests. These are the measures. A failure to manifest this in your life, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 12 to 14. We don't have time. We won't go there. But according to the Apostle Paul, if these things are not manifest in your life, then your life is a, is a, is a demonstration of fleshliness. That you are walking by the flesh and not by the Spirit. And the Apostle Paul says that if you walk by the flesh and not by the Spirit, then you are not a child of God. For all those who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Galatians 5, 22, 23 is not an option. It's not, you know, well, if I feel like it, I'm going to be kind of loving, patient, kind, gentle, and... You know, and so forth. Self-controlled today, and if I don't feel like it, I won't. Okay, application, practical commitment. Because of the foundational nature of holiness, both individually and corporately, because of the critical nature to our testimony as the redeemed of God, we commit to you that we will practice biblical church discipline in this fellowship. Not that we can send people away, but that we can seek to restore them to a walk of faith in Christ. So we are committed to following Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. Beloved, these, these are exciting times. I, with all my heart, believe the days ahead are full of opportunity. Just laced with it. Let us go forth in confidence in our great God that if we will live in accordance with His way of doing things, there is no end to the blessing that He will pour forth.
Every week we inform you, if you are new with us or perhaps you've been here a while, you've heard the gospel preached, you understand that that you don't have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. You may have some awareness of who he is, um, but, but you, you don't know him personally. You're not in relationship with him. You're not, you, you have no security. If you die tonight, you don't know where you're going. You're not sure. As we do every week, we'll do again this week. There will be some folks over here by this lighted cross. They're there to, to help you. They're there to open the Bible with you to explain the way of salvation more clearly to you. We trust that you would not leave here this morning with hearts and minds full of doubts and questions, that you would take advantage of that and come and see what the Bible would have to say to you. Let's pray. Our Father, the church, the church is yours. The Apostle Paul says it is your tillage field. It is your fruit garden. And we, by grace, are part of it all. Our Father, our hearts desire to glorify you. That rings within all the true children of God. We want to please you. As a young child would seek to please its father here in the humanly realm, our father, we seek to please you in the spiritual realm. We thank you, Lord God, that you've not left us vague, floundering around with no direction, somehow trying to figure it out and hoping that whatever it is we do would be pleasing with you. But, Lord God, you left us your infallible word, Holy Scripture. That gives us all we need for life and godliness. We do pray, our Father, as we begin this series talking about our aspirational goals as a church, that, that you would refine us, that you would, you would use the sword of, of, of the Spirit, the, the very Word of God, to reach down into our hearts and, and do whatever kind of divine surgery needs to be done. Draw us to yourself. Take away the pride and the selfishness that so easily flares up in every one of us. And enable us to fulfill the purpose for which we were brought into this world, and that is to glorify you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.